Happy Thanksgiving week, friends. What a beautiful time to reflect on life's blessings. You've heard us talk about Thistle Farms, a two-year program where women survivors of trafficking and exploitation receive safe, meaningful employment, along with housing, therapy, and health care. We're big fans. This week, the women of Thistle Farms want to share with us some of the things they are grateful for that they have found through the healing of Thistle Farms. In the past year, women in the program are grateful to have been reunited with their children. They've bought their own cars, purchased their first home, so much more. You listeners play a part in this season of gratitude because every time you buy a Thistle Farms product, a candle, a gift set, a leather bag, you support the handiwork and the healing of a woman in their program. So this week, while you're getting your holiday shopping, we encourage you to visit thistlefarms.org and purchase products for yourself and gifts for others that directly support women's healing journeys and add to their list of things to be grateful for. Don't forget to enter the code where we are at checkout to receive 15% off your purchase. That's W-E-A-R, we are, all one word, and enter that in at checkout. Happy Thanksgiving from Melissa and I and our friends at Thistle Farms. On this week's episode of Where We Are, Melissa and I will take audience uh, questions. We have uh, received great questions from our listeners over the last couple of weeks, and we thought it was time to do another Q&A episode. And so we're excited to take your questions. This is Where We Are. You're listening to Where We Are. I'm Michael Ware. I'm Melissa Ware. And uh, Melissa, this is the first time that we've had to do one of these episodes uh, apart. I'm looking at you on a, on a video screen instead of uh, being able to touch your hand and be with you in person. Uh, <laughs> We are where we are from afar. From afar. That, wow. I, I, I didn't put that. Yeah, where we are is two, def, two separate places. Yeah. Two different places. Oh, yeah. Um, but it's good to see you. I've been at this like retreat meeting thing sort of off the grid. And so I, it's been hard to sort of reach me and, and I haven't. No like Wi-Fi, no cell access. I'm back here with these two children who have gotten sick for like the sixth time in six weeks. I think, I don't know if it was last week we talked about this or, or uh, two episodes ago, the, the pronoun usage when they're, when they're uh, our children, when they're mine, you didn't, you didn't play the pronoun game that time, but I, I could sense you wanted to say your, your children. To be frank. <laughs> uh, hey, I think we, yeah. So we, I think we have, yeah, we have, uh, we have questions to get to. Let's, let's, let's dive in. I mean, first of all, thank you to those of you who sent in uh, questions and we're always open to receiving your questions. We kind of do Q and a listener question episodes uh, uh, when they're warranted based on sort of the, the questions we've received. So you could always send those to us over social media, even though social media is dying, uh, at least Twitter. Um, or, you know, email or over on the Substack. 
so so first of all, thank you for these questions, and it's a good way to for us to really be in conversation with our listeners. And you, you all think of questions that we would never think to ask uh, uh, ourselves or to, to or each to talk other about on the show. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so we'll start off here. Um, the very first question is, what were your hours like working in the White House, Michael? <laughs> I remember. Yeah. I mean, I'm interested in your perspective on this. Um, they were – so um, I was young. I was just so young. So it was a time in my life when it kind of didn't matter. I didn't get married until I'd been in the White House for – over two years um and so uh and then you know i I was in the white house for maybe like nine months of of marriage and melissa you sort of knew sort of what my hours were at the time so it wasn't a huge stressor and i didn't have a whole bunch of like other commitments but but they were extensive hours and it wasn't just the hours at the office which would, you know, um, thankfully, I was in an office where sort of starting the day doing initial emails uh, uh, on your way to the office or sort of when you woke up and then heading in was was okay. Not everyone sort of uh, had that. So typically, I want to have to be until 8 39. Um, and then, you know, I was lucky if I got out at seven, sometimes I'd be in later, but I think the most important thing about the most significant thing about being on the white house, especially, um, you know, we were the first white house to be fully in like the blackberry smartphone era, which is like, you were just never off. No, that BlackBerry was always in your hand, Michael. And there's a way in which like any news happening in the world um, that's significant ends up at the White House. So there was always like this sense of needing to be plugged in, to be responsive and and to not sort of lose a step. And so it was, I don't know if I'd have the mental capacity for doing the job the way I did it with the sort of like all consuming, you know, sort of like attention that I did then. But yeah, no, it was, it was a lot, but I was, I was young. I didn't quite understand. Like I was, I felt like um, I was in a season of my life where my attention didn't need to be pulled in too many other directions. Um, I think if, if I got a bachelor's degree in the middle of this FYI, folks. This is true. Um, (laughs) uh, If I, if I was to like go back to that kind of role, I think I need to, have a lot healthier boundaries, but I, I basically had no boundaries, which I think is like why 
<laughs> I think it's like why I, why they kept me uh, why they kept me around for so long. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Melissa, do you have any anything else like you to add on that? No, like yeah. I'd say like you average around fifty five to sixty five hours a week. Like that was just like an average. Yeah. Like a good week would be like a 50 to 55 hour week. Um, but like I can remember during various things like the HHS contraception mandate, it was literally 24 seven. You had like an 80 to 90 hour work week that week. Yeah. Um, yeah. I remember those 80 hour work weeks and I, I just distinctly remember that Blackberry just constantly being open and out. Yes. Um, yeah. No. Yeah. It was. Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was a lot, but I, I feel like it was also like a great time uh, in my life. Now, Melissa, you were working, you know, downtown for yeah, DC for much of that. And so, you know, Melissa would drop by the office at like six 30 and, 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 uh, Sometimes. I would stop by during I'd stop by during lunch because the State Department, it was yes. like if I walked quickly, it was like an eight block walk over to Farragut North, which was the area we're in on Jackson Place. I would walk really quickly. I'd bring you cozy or oh. um, a pen. Yeah. And I would bring it in and Joshua would usually be like, What did you bring him? Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or, or just be like, Hey Joshua. Um, this is Joshua to what I'm talking about. And I'd bring you lunch and I'd maybe stay for five to ten minutes, but I always was trying to be respectful of the fact that I had no idea what I was walking into and also that Joshua might walk over to you at any <laughs> moment and say, Hey, I need you. Yeah. Or um you had to, you know, be working with an intern or something. Um but yeah, I walked over for and brought you lunch a lot, and then I would walk over afterwards quite a bit, unless I had a because I was in the I was getting my bachelor's degree, and then eventually uh, I was in my master's degree while you were in the White House. Yeah. And we'd hit up the Froyo. Remember the Froyo around the around the corner? Yeah, yeah, that That's was good too. Right, I forgot about the Froyo. Yes, oh. and we we'd always be so excited when they had the peanut butter when they yes. had the peanut butter. <laughs> Peanut butter froyo, and if they would mix it correctly, if they put the right amount of mixer in it. When they didn't, I used to be so upset. Yes, be like you have one job. <laughs> yeah. Mix your right the, froyo. You have to fro the yo, okay? So, let me please <laughs> get this together. Anyways, moving on. Yep. So this is a really interesting question. Um, what is a policy issue you've changed your mind on before, and why? Uh, so I'll go first here. Um, so everybody listening to this podcast has most likely heard of counterterrorism policy. It's something that came about. We we had it. We've had it for a long time, but it's something that really solidified what we know now as counterterrorism policy came out after nine eleven. Um, so 2001. Um, and so I was very young at that point. But then you know, entering college, getting into international relations, national security. I generally wasn't critical of the policy, um, but until I actually did the work on the policy um, in my career uh, through countering violent extremism policy, which is the offshoot of counterterrorism policy, I saw the just untold damage that this policy that was pretty much the CVE policy that was birthed between like 2010, 2014 and really solidified in 2014 by the Obama administration I saw the havoc that it wrought on um, Muslim communities across America, and I completely changed my tune on CVE policy. I'm very wary of it now. I'm wary of the approaches. I'm wary of all these theories of how people radicalize. Um, so 
that's definitely something that I've changed my mind on simply because I kind of went from sort of an academic understanding of it to um, working on the policy um, in, in real time and talking to uh, communities and people who actually were um, the quote unquote beneficiaries who were not actually beneficiaries of the policy. Yeah. I, I just, on, on that issue, for me, it was, um, you, you know, I, I think, I think it's definitely fair, fair to say, and Melissa, like you're the expert sort of here to comment on the American side. And I don't know the degree the the degree of harm that the American counterterrorism policy caused uh, sort of here, I, I will say like my eyes were open to the capacity of um, the, the basic, the policy bucket, like if you take it to a certain extent to where it could be headed in the States by going to the UK and seeing what the prevent program was doing in the UK for um, the way it was, uh, I think unfairly targeting uh, uh, Muslims in the UK. And I don't think that the U S situation got, was, was that got that profound. And part of that is just the, the, um, uh, well, yeah, but to, to go to the UK and see, how far those policies could push and then there's some of the same language in the states and p- some people pushing for more uk like policies uh, yeah because yeah, they talk, cause they talk yes. um policymakers talk and i was in on a lot of those conversations um sort of championing uh, what prevent did in the uk and it's the point where prevent what you know t- school teachers are trained in prevent policy and told to report students who might be acting suspicious or talking about suspicious things or using keywords that they're trained to sort of um, perk up at and then report. And um, it can end up with, you know, children being, you know, and their families being accused of things um, just because they're, you know, happen to be asking, you know, a question about something. Right. Um, or like a, or like a Muslim student saying like, I, I believe w- women should be homemakers like my mommy. And that being sort of interpreted as like a sweeping ideological sort of like, Sort of like, yeah, like policy. Families holding Sharia law, and Sharia law is an automatic, you know, check check mark. (laughs) You check the box. Yeah, um, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, it. Um, I still think CV Paul. I mean, we. Yeah. No. Yeah. We're we're almost a decade since you know Obama made Obama made the task force on CVE. Um, I think that it. I think that it's just done a lot of damage, and for now, for a lot of the folks and activists and groups and things that are interested in um, what they call domestic terrorism and are focusing more on far right, um, you know, violent extremism and terrorism are taking, kind of have this policy that they're still kind of taking from, but not actually trying to turn on its head and say, what lessons did we learn from it? Yeah. Um, Yeah, yeah. There were a lot of lessons learned when it comes to putting people in boxes. Yes. Very um, opaque uh, sort of, um, boxes that cannot be sort of like changed. Um, and just, 
I don't know, theories of why somebody would radicalize. I mean, you have whole governments, Canadian government, U.S. government, European governments who who were buying into like, this is how people radicalize. There's yeah, yeah, yeah. a way of radicalizing. And if you fit that bill, like that's who, you know, we're going to be listening in on your conversations. Yeah, yes, yes. you. And I mean, the, I mean, the whole surveillance system on Muslim communities for the last several decades is a, is a whole other. Yeah their kettle of fish. But yeah, since working on that policy, I've, I've become much more skeptical, much more wary, um, really wishing that um, the whole like sort of industrial complex around it would be um, reflected on a bit more. Yeah. So in, in preparation sort of for this question, you know, I'm sure that there are policy questions that you know are presented as sort of binaries or for or against where I, I've switched my position, but I couldn't really think of anything in the time I had to prep. So I, I think the the shift that I describe is sort of two shifts in opposite directions, at least in terms of how they're traditionally like categorized politically on federal government spending, particularly on like social programs. And that is in one direction, I'm more cognizant now than I was before about um, the unintended, sometimes unintended, and sometimes sort of like the ways that major federal government social programs, because of the way lawmaking works, because of the way coalition building works, um, laws that are, or programs that are proposed to be like a, a pre-K program or a childcare program, um, like there are many ways to for the federal government to support childcare, many ways for the federal government to support pre-K. Yeah. Uh, uh, and I think sometimes these questions get presented politically as like, uh, if you oppose the bill on, then you oppose. Th- then you oppose like the idea of better, better childcare or or more widely available childcare. But it's like no, actually embedded in these in these social programs often are like unintended consequences or like changes to the sector that are just not that that you you would judge to be not not helpful. So that would be the one that I'm much more cognizant of. Um, like the other work that that uh, government spending programs can do to a sector that maybe aren't at the center of debate, but end up being quite consequential. The other side of that, so in some ways that's like, um, yeah. So the other thing I'd say, which, so that's obviously a conservative sort of, a more conservative critique. I think the more progressive position I've moved towards is a real, not a total, but an increasing, uh, increasing uh, skepticism of means testing for <laughs> social programs. And, yeah. you know, Matt Brunick, is, as we've talked about, Matt, Matt's really influenced me on this. And I think there was like, especially in like the Clinton years, but like a neoliberal, like, yeah, we could do yeah, like government could be a force for good, but like we just gotta like do everything. We gotta, we can really like um, 
there's like a technocratic way that we could design programs so that like only those who quote unquote deserve it will have access to it and da da da. And I think I am more, it's not the idea of limiting uh, limiting the uh, the uh, the pool for certain programs that I'm against. What's convinced me about to be more skeptical of means testing is that oftentimes what's required to to do the means testing can block out those most in need of the programs. Mm -hmm. so, so like, you know, if you have all these reporting requirements in to make sure that people meet certain income thresholds or or don't hit income ceilings, well, well, well that's a burden you're putting on uh, the potential beneficiary to like to meet in order to receive the benefit. And so like we do have these like poverty programs that the most poor they're not reaching. And so I so mean the amount of programs there are where that where the mo the poorest do not benefit is too many to count to the point where it's almost common knowledge that they're just not going to benefit. Right. Uh, that shouldn't be common knowledge and that should not be a common outcome. Yeah. No, yeah. So 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 that that would be the thing. I'm I'm both I'm much more aware and focused on the design of uh, of of especially federal government social programs and all of the effects that they'll have instead of just uh, instead of I think overly favoring sort of the top line um, uh, the, you know the top line uh, purpose of the program. Uh, and, and then I'm also more skeptical that you could design these things uh, so tightly um, without having any harm on sort of who can access the program. So, so, so yeah, yeah. That, that would be, I, I, I'm just, I think a, a more sophisticated, my, my uh, more sophisticated and skeptical view while still believing government, I can do big things and and good things. Um, uh, uh, applying a more rigorous sort of skepticism to the way these programs are actually designed in both directions, in a progressive direction and and in sort of a conservative, in a conservative direction. Got it. Okay. So uh, our last serious, our last couple of serious questions. Um, the first is President Biden running again. Yes. I uh, think so. President Trump has announced. Yes. Uh, and, you know, I'm sticking to what I've said for the last year, which is, I think, having a Republican House is going to be politically beneficial to Biden. Uh, and I think they should, there's no need for Biden to announce early in 2023. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think they should sit through, they, they should go the first hundred days of the new Congress, assess where he stands after that, and then make a decision. But I think especially with Trump in the race, there is no way unless there's some significant health crisis or just, or Biden's poll ratings absolutely plummet or something. There's no way Biden is going to 
provide the chance that what he believes happened in 2016, which is that mm-hmm. he sat out the race and it allowed Trump to win. Mm-hmm. There's no way that as sitting president, he's going to watch the 2024 race unfold from the Oval Office <laughs> yeah. um, uh, and like sit there and watch potentially even risk the chance that he watches Trump Win, you know, win the White House back after he ran in 2020 to defeat him. Like, it, it, it's, it's just not going to happen yeah. unless you convince the sitting president of the United States. And by the way, it is just impossible. It is very difficult to convince sitting presidents of anything. <laughs> it, it, it's it's going to be very, very difficult to convince the incumbent president who just won uh, the last presidential election that he can't win this time around, especially when everyone thought that he couldn't win in 2020. Like, it's just, yeah, I, th- I think he's running again. Okay. I, I mean, I agree, but you have a much better explanation. Hey. Um, okay. So our last of the serious questions, um, who is your favorite up and coming politician? I mean, look, we talk about Lauren Underwood. Yeah. We talk about, I, I like Grace Ming. Who's that? Uh, Congresswoman in uh, in New York City. Oh, okay. Yes. Um, I, I, I've, I've had some interaction with her and think, think highly of her. Um, uh, you know, I don't think it's like Michael Bennett. It's hard to call a sitting U.S. senator an up up and comer, uh, but yeah. you know we like we like Michael Bennett. Um, you know, I I think there are all kinds of interesting people at the local level. Uh, there's a Republican, uh, Weston Womp, who I who I really like. Um, uh, you know, I I think. Yeah, I, I disagree with her on a range of policy issues, but I think Katie Britts is going to be our uh, absolute rock star for Republicans. She's the newly elected senator from Alabama. Yeah. And I think uh, she's going to be in VP talks very early on. So, yeah. Melissa, do you have do you have anyone you're you're keeping an eye on? Um, I mean, I'm keeping an eye on our new governor in Maryland, Westmore. Um, yeah. He, he's, I think, I think somebody commented, uh, I'm trying to remember who give a shout it, because I'm currently blanking on who said it in our, in our live election thread saying that he was, uh, basically made in a lab to be the perfect politician. And I mean, I have to agree. Um, he just, he just has, he checks all kinds of boxes. Um, and, uh, our own mayor, um, Brandon Scott, is also very young. He's 38. And I think if he can weather being mayor of Baltimore, um, I think he could weather a lot of politics above being mayor of Baltimore. Um, I don't know, Michael, if you just saw, but they just finished their um, their special committee on um, squeegee kids. In Baltimore, there was a horrific shooting involving um, squeegee kids a few months ago, and they've the mayor put together a task force to discuss how are we going to address um, basically like a 40 to 50 year um, issue of um, youth needing to find work through squeegeeing car windows on various Baltimore streets. 
And the task force came up with like some really interesting um, solutions, all focusing on like social welfare and poverty and access and education. It wasn't like your typical list of like, we're just going to throw, you know, money at it. We're going to throw law enforcement at it. Um, And so he's, you know, he, he constantly is, he's weathering COVID. He's came, he came in in 2020 during COVID. So I'm curious about um, our own mayor, Brandon Scott, just because he's so young. Um, I mean, there were a bunch of other super young folks who won or not, I mean, only one super young Max Frost, but younger um, who won um, new seats like Summer Lee. Like I'm just interested to watch some of the new democratic uh, candidates coming in on on the house. Like you were saying on the Republican side, Um, I'm interested to see where Hakeem Jeffries ends up. Yes. Yes. You and I have been huge Hakeem Jeffrey fans since he came in. You, you immediately, you said, this man's going to be Speaker of the House very I did. soon. I did. I, yeah. I did say that. I'm, I mean, I didn't want to point it out, but but uh, but you pointed it out for me. I yeah, early so, on, I thought, yeah. And I like Hakeem Jeffries. So I'd say he's probably one of my top of like who I'm looking forward to seeing where he goes. Yeah. 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 No, that's good. All right. I think we have some less serious questions and I think maybe like thank kind of, a, sending, thank you for sending in less serious questions. So it's not all serious. Yeah, all so kind of like a, I think like a lightning round. Yeah. Let's. Okay. okay Michael, favorite kind of cheese. Um, I like how you call this a lightning round. You're like, a good, uh, ma- a good, a good mozzarella. But oh, I've been yeah. thinking Melissa about like the mountain herb, cheese from the dolomites the Um, mountain cheese from the dolomites is definitely top three for me soft pecorino is another yes yes not just because most pecorino that's sold in grocery stores is like a much harder like the kind that you would you know it's age but this is like early young pecorino yeah young pecorino and then oh man parmigiano reggiano just my absolute favorite yeah put it on everything bury me with it (laughs) um (laughs) Is there a good gluten-free pasta? Um, I actually, Michael, I mean, you really haven't sampled gluten-free pastas too much, but when I've had the the bonza pasta, which is chickpea made out of chickpeas, I actually think it's pretty good. It cooks well and it tastes nice. Yeah. Um, uh, if you're if you have to run for state or citywide office, what would you run for? Melissa? Honest honestly, uh I really don't know. I've never really thought about it. Yeah. Because never in a million years would I ever actually run for office. Yeah. It's just yeah. not the life for me. Yeah. No. I mean, it's it's. Um, uh, yeah. So I mean, just to answer the question, I'd say state, but it it, it is. So I actually really um, when 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 people come to me and say, "Hey, I'm interested in running for public office," like the first thing I say is like you know, you don't run for public office generally, you run for a specific office. So what is your, why, what's your reason for running for a specific office? And Mm -hmm. it has to be that you have a unique contribution to make in a way that's specific to that role. And so I, I, I'm just like, not, um, uh, I think that there's, there's a more widely held view of like public office as like a way of uh, 
notoriety or like having your yeah. voice heard. Yeah. Uh, and sometimes like, uh, and so like, I really like want to like um, dissuade folks from, from that view. I don't, this is like kind of a silly question and just like a hypothetical, but, um, but, but, but uh, yeah, I don't think um, the sort of like, would you run for public office generally sort of question is all that useful. It's, it's, it's like, um, it's, it's, is there a specific office that you feel, you know, called the called servant say? Yeah. I mean, if this were just like completely hypothetical and I actually really did want to run for some kind of office, I, I could see myself serving on a school board, Yeah, but um, I, I otherwise don't want that kind of attention on me. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like working behind the scenes. I like helping people. Yeah. Um, I don't like being the person um, with the microphone yeah. um, as I, as I talk on a podcast. Yes. Um, so Irish goodbyes or Italian goodbyes? For me, it's Irish 100% of the time. I've always done Irish goodbyes. Irish goodbyes are my favorite thing on the planet. I'm very Irish in that way. Yeah. I Well, so I think my family was like very stereotypically Italian goodbyes. Yes, your family is very Italian goodbye, Michael. Yes, I think I tone it down a bit, but – how many parties have we been to where I'm like, Melissa, I just have to go like say goodbye to this person again. And like you, you have to like wait at the door. Oh my goodness. Say, you know, I, I got to do one last round of goodbyes. So I definitely have that in me. <laughs> in me still though. I'm not, you know, uh, Sunday family dinner growing up. Yeah. We'd have like aunts and uncles who, you know, with five different goodbyes, and then a beep as they as they drive away, like in case in case the message didn't come through. Yeah, hilarious. Um, who has longer phone calls? I would want five hundred billion percent say you. Really? Yeah, you have much longer phone calls. Oh my goodness. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I'm constantly in the background. You really don't, you're really not on the phone all that much. No, I don't like talking as I talk on a podcast. Yeah, wow. Yeah, this is really exposing your inconsistencies. I'm talking with you, and this is one way to talk to you every week is on a podcast for everyone to hear. Hey, that's what I like to hear. This is probably my favorite question that made me laugh out loud. Who would win in a fist fight, Howard Thurman or Dallas Willard? Okay, first of all, <laughs> what a deranged mind the person in that. <laughs> Second of all, I've thought about this question quite a bit. <laughs> um, and, you know, so uh, Willard was, Dallas was once asked, uh, you know, if if someone was ever, um, you know, threatening like his family with violence, um, or or if he ever saw someone being, um, I forget the exact question. It was something like your family's being threatened with violence, or like um, if. Uh, if you saw someone who was being attacked, would you use violence to intervene? Something like that. 
And Willard's answer was, yes, but I do it without anger in my heart. Uh, like I do it as like the, 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 the best way to, to love those involved given the circumstances, you know, like this beautiful sort of answer. And a man really said, yes, I would totally throw a punch. Yeah. 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 Uh, 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 but not out of a spirit of inflicting harm. Yeah. So Dallas grew up like in the country. He had brothers who were kind of physical, older older brothers who were kind of like physical with him. And he writes about that a bit. So I, I think I'm going to say, I think, I think, I think Dallas, um, but, but it's a, it's a tough, it's a tough call. Um, and there, there may be some history there that would change, change my mind. Uh, but, but based on what I know of the two men, I I think, I think I'd go with Dallas. Yeah. All right. There you have it. Um, how tall did you want to be growing up? You know, I feel really good about six, (laughs) two and I am six, (laughs) two, and this was recently confirmed. At, the doctor's, at my doctor's appointment, after months of Melissa gaslighting me, <laughs> saying that I there was no way I was 6'2". Because you slouch. And I must have shrunk. Uh, and I did not... She, she was on the verge of calling me her short king. And <laughs> I did not appreciate that at all. And so I wanted to be 6'2 growing up. I am 6'2. <laughs> mm-hmm. and, uh, and I feel pretty good about it. Melissa Height was quite a, um, a, 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 a dominant theme of your childhood. It really was. Well, it's because the doctors told my parents when I was three that I'd end up being around six foot two. That that was their prediction because I was like wildly tall as a young child. Well, I hit puberty supremely early at seven. And so what that does is it causes your growth plates to close. So I was five foot nine by the age of 10. So I towered over everyone. So I was always self-conscious about how tall I was. But then I thought, oh, well, I'm going to hit six foot two. And that's pretty cool. Then I stopped at five foot nine. And so I was always kind of bitter about that. I was, I wanted to be six foot two. Like they, like I was told my whole life that I would be. And then I, when I didn't hit it, I felt like a failure. Uh. Yeah. Um, what is the silliest argument that we've had since getting married? Uh, since getting married, I'm not sure. But we had a, a absolute, absolute horror of an argument during our engagement. Yeah. And it was because uh, Melissa had thrown out oh my a gosh. signed yes. CD that I had uh-huh. because... Like we were, we were, I, I was moving into the apartment that she'd move into when we got married or no, the other way around, we were moving stuff in preparation for, uh, where we'd live after we got married and Melissa was just trying to organize things and, and sort of, uh, made some decisions about what was needed and what was not. And, uh, I, to me, it turned into like a metaphor of, 
uh, I am losing control over my life. <laughs> and I will not be respected uh, in, in like our house and will disappear and I will just have no control over it. And the funny thing the funny thing is that that's what has happened is that because <laughs> so, I get into a cleaning tizzy literally every single day and I just throw things out. I'm like, if you have not moved them, if you have not looked at them, it's getting thrown out. And then I'll, and then I'll be like, where is it? And I'll be like, I have no idea. It's like I got amnesia right after I did it. Um, but the thing is, is that everybody, I just want you to understand to marry Michael is to marry Michael and his boxes of belongings. Michael has boxes upon boxes upon boxes upon boxes of old newspapers, newspaper clippings, every single concert ticket, show ticket, show program um, experience that he has ever had in his entire life. He has just bins of them. And so I was going through one of these bins because I'd never really actually gone through one before. And I was like, you've got to be kidding me. Okay, we're going to – why do we have this? Um, and so that's what happened. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so his greatest fear came true. That is actually how he lives his life in total fear that I'm going to throw something out because I do. <laughs> but I'm, I'm doing okay, guys. Don't send don't send any help for me. Uh, send him your concert tickets. He will cherish them forever. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Melissa, any, anything else uh, you want? One last question. Yeah. And this this one, um, which child do you like more, Michael? Of our children, obviously. <laughs> uh, it. Uh, so the question is like. Yes, so it's I not what we love more because we yeah. love our children equally yeah. for real. So it vacillates. It totally <laughs> does. It really, it really does. Not, not based, not like on a day to day basis, but just for anyone who's been uh, a parent, uh, particularly a multiple. Uh, developmentally uh they just go through seasons and it's really not uh but but if you have two i think like there are just some uh i am i am wired and melissa is wired to like different developmental seasons we really are and so it's interesting having two kids uh because i think if they were twins uh, this wouldn't be a relevant question, but because they're going through different developmental stages at different times, then yeah, like you, you definitely like the one that's in the developmental stage that you're more predispositioned to than, yep. <laughs> than the other. Yeah. 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 I know that's a non-answer and it's because I'm not going to be recorded saying, uh, I like one child over the other. Yeah. Uh, we are not going to give children fodder later on when this question was asked melissa and i have a very clear answer at this moment 100 have an answer right now <laughs> yes we do <laughs> oh. Oh, boy. anything you want to add there melissa or do you want to like preserve our integrity with our children the future relationship that we have with our children if they ever listen to our podcast in the year like 20 35 yeah Good. That's yes. a good thing. All right. Is I think that's it. That's all, folks. Well, Melissa, I missed you. I've been gone for, you know. Too long. Too long. I'll be back tomorrow. But yeah. um, 
It was good. We'll have Thanksgiving week and we hope everybody has a wonderful Thanksgiving. Yes. Have a great Thanksgiving. I'll be cooking up a storm. So much cooking. I bought your turkey today. I saw it. It looked beautiful. Yeah. It's 20 pounds. Yeah, baby. Uh, so yeah, no, that'll be good. And uh, yeah, happy Thanksgiving. And uh, Melissa, are we doing an episode next next week? Uh, I don't think we are, folks. I think we've we've taken some time off. Maybe, maybe, maybe? I should probably know this. <laughs> okay, so we may not be back next week. We we may be back next week. It's always a surprise, folks. Uh, if we are back next week, if you subscribe to the podcast, it'll show up. <laughs> Michael, I just looked at our podcast calendar. We, in fact, are. So everybody, you can expect to see us next week. Okay, we're committed. And if we're committed, we're committed. Uh, Okay, we'll see you next week. Until then, it's been great being with you. This has been Where We Are. Bye.